Well, greetings to each of you in our Lord's name. He is worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be glorified this morning as we come before him. I've been spending some time wondering where I should go in the next series, and it seems like that it, it keeps opening up to me that I should we should do a series out of Psalm 51. So I invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to Psalm 51. And this is the Psalm of true repentance. This is the Psalm where David has come to the awareness. He's come to the acknowledgement. He's come to the repentance of his sin with Bathsheba and he and killing Uriah and he is bringing some things to the to the forefront some things that that he is experiencing himself some things that God is doing in his life and even though we may say well these are things we've never done I want us to look at the principles of the issue as we go through here because I believe with all my heart that whether it's a small what we call small sins or whether it's something we call a heinous or a gross sin it all needs to be repented of it all needs to be brought at the foot of the cross to the foot of the cross so this morning some of the things we're going to look at are going to be pretty dire and pretty deep but I want us to note that we should not turn the gaze of the Word of God away from ourselves. Do not seek to avert the, the, the pressure that God puts on us to repent of our sin. I don't care if it's little and I don't care if it's big. Because little sins are like little foxes that spoil the vines, as, this, as the Scripture says. They soon grow to be big foxes and they do a lot of damage. And as we allow what we call little sins into our lives, we will find that there's a process by which we secure ourselves in these sins. We're going to find that with David. And there's a process by which God wants to free us from these sins by repentance. So let's, let's read the first two verses, Psalm 51, verses 1 to 2. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the mercy, multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David is here beginning this chapter with a plea and a cry for God's mercy and God's grace. But we're going to have to dig in a little bit to see why David is at this place as we read here in the beginning of this chapter. We'll come back to it. But let us turn to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. And we're going to do somewhat of a lengthy reading here. Second Samuel, verse 11, beginning in verse 1. I want to read through chapter 12, verse 15. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the, the 
wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. The woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When David had, be- had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing, how the war would prosper. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of, the, of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Why did you not, did you not come from a long journey? I'm sorry, let me read that again. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are, in, are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to this house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Let Uriah set Uriah to the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and, sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth, was it not a woman who cast a piece of the millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And then David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks in herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with, and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup, and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. 
But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, that man shall, who, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that were, had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Have, you have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and, be, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun." So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin, and you, sh you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. This is a heavy and a sad story. But David was not unlike us. Let's not think that David was somehow out here on some sort of place that we are not familiar with. All of us would readily admit today that we are prone to error, we're prone to, to make mistakes, and sometimes we sin. But most people today never experience true repentance. And I'm looking at the society in general. They never experience true repentance because they've never found and faced the painful awakening to the reality of their sin. And what it looks like to God. David writes about this reality because he's facing his own personal sin against God. His failure before God to do what God asks him to do. And he finds God the, to be the God who cleanses him. And renews him in a new fellowship with him. So as we work our way through these passages, it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit would awaken anyone who is asleep in their sin. If you are asleep in your sin today, that God would awaken you and strengthen any one of us who is turning from their sin. God has given you repentance this morning. My prayer is that this would strengthen you. God is not blanket condemning everybody in this passage. There are some noble and 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 worthy characters here that we need to we need to pay attention to. And so this story is not just a story about David. This story is a, is a story, it is accurate with the story of humanity. It is accurate with the depravity of our natural man. And we need God's grace. Most times, 
God has been, well, God has always been so good to us that most times we bump along through life and ignore our need of his grace. Ignore the fact that I need him day by day. So as we look at this, I want to look at some things here uh, that led to his sin, that led to his repentance. The title of this message is The Acute and Painful Awareness of Personal Sin. The Acute and Painful Awareness of Personal Sin. You know, it's something to, to look at this and say, well, that was David. But Jesus said, as if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, he has committed the adultery in his heart already with her. If any man hates his brother without a cause, he is a murderer already in his own heart. So let's not think that this is just, it's easy to look at David and say, well, that happened over there. But it's something else when you have to understand that the seeds of what David did, they dwell inside everyone who's living today. Yes, we are set free by the grace of God. Christ has freed us from the bondage to that sin. But as long as we live in the flesh, we still must do battle with the flesh. And that's what's in the flesh. That's what's there. We need to be aware of it. So as, let's look first of all, beginning in verse chapter 11, the context of David's downfall. The context. The context speaks into his downfall. Let's notice that it was the spring of the year. The kings were going out to battle, and in the city-state time of, of David's reign, these, these, these big cities would, would, would have a king, and they would have and they would seek to expand their, their kingdom, and they'd go out to war against somebody they thought they could conquer. They'd go up against another city, and they'd want to take that city and everything that they owned, and they would enlarge their kingdom. And so Israel was constantly having to deal with enemies that wanted to come in and take over. And so the first thing I want us to note is that David was experiencing an abundance of success. David is experiencing an abundance of success. You can look at all through Scripture, and the prophets, and yes, even the historians, they look back to David's rule and David's reign in, in, in Israel as the golden era. It is the, the high mark of the Old Testament uh, uh, kingdom of God in the people of Israel. David did more to enhance the work of God and to, to obey God than any other king in, in, in all the history of, of the kings. Let's notice what this looked like. So in verse 1 we have, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. It was, Israel was such a powerful nation at this time, and they had so many skilled military personnel that David does not need to be actively involved in the battle. He can send these men, and they're very successful, without him ever being on the battlefield. Number two, let's notice that they are very successful. And this is something God had told them that they must do. They must take out all these nations that were leading them into idolatry, and they were to do away with them, completely take them off the face of the earth. And we know that Israel failed to do that. And it was these people that brought them back into idolatry time and time again. But we notice there in, in verse 1 that they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. So it was a, there was an obedience and a success in that obedience. They were obeying God's command to wipe out these idolatrous nations around them. And this account demonstrates that the sin of this world that is out there on a large scale starts with the sinfulness that is in the heart of man. We look out there, and that's bad out there. But you know what? It's bad out there because the root 
that that tree grows out of is the same root we have to deal with here. And as David was fighting the battle out there, he he, he failed to deal with the root in his own heart. In fact, it was so much so that that root grew up and overtook his life for a bit. I want to ask you, how do you view success in your life? Success is a blessing from God. But someone made the, quoted the verse, they that would be rich fall into temptation and a snare and many, and drown themselves in many hurtful lusts. To just want a smashing success is not the answer to a right relationship with God. Although we have good success in the kingdom of God, it never removes the danger of falling into a deep sin. It actually may increase our danger. The greater the success, the more chance of pride coming in. I want to ask you this morning, how are you using the success God gives you? If you've had success in your Christian life, how, are, how is that being used? Is it for the glory of God? Is it for His glory alone? Oh, we're, we're to rejoice in God-given victories. These are never to be an opportunity to be giving room to the flesh. David took his victories. And while his people were out fighting, he was at home. Let's notice number two was the abundance of idleness. Not only did he have an abundance of success, but he had an abundance of idleness. In verse 2, we see how that it was evening and David arose from his bed. Why did he get up in the evening? It's because he had been lounging in his bed during the day. I understand he needs, he needs to rest. And that's not a, that, there's nothing against getting rest. But an abundance of idleness leads to a place where Satan can infiltrate and produce something within that is difficult to control. We have the old saying that says, idleness is the devil's workshop. And it's true. You know, when, when the prophet talks about the sin of Sodom, what was one of the things, what, what are the things that he said about Sodom as being the problem of them getting to such a place as they did? Abundance of idleness and abundance of bread. They had all their needs taken care of and they were just kicking back and taking it easy. This attitude is the fertile ground for sin to spring up, especially moral failure. So David is tempted here, and he's falling for what he should not do because he's not doing what he should be doing. Israel was out fighting the battles, and he should have been, by God's design, with them in the field. He should have been there to support and encourage, at least. But he's lounging in his palace in Jerusalem. And it's, it's a failure to do what God has given him to do, and it makes him unable, it makes him weak. To withstand the temptation to do what he should not do. You want to take a big chunk out of a temptation in your life? Do what you should do. Be obedient where God calls you to be obedient as a believer. Obedience serves two purposes. One, it helps us accomplish what God says. But number two, it keeps us from what God says not to do. And it does both at the same time. You see, not only is there 
that which we ought to do. But there is that which we ought not to do. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, Paul is, is reminding Timothy and he's reminding the church. He says, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You see, he doesn't just want us to step back and say, well, I, I'm not going to get involved in that evil thing. He wants us to pursue the righteousness of Christ. He wants us to go after Christ. Because there is where we find our help and our sustenance and our strength to resist the temptation that would drag us down into the mire of sin. Let's notice that his David's right perception, his clear thinking, is dulled by his idleness. He's not thinking right. This is a sign, friends, that we're becoming spiritually dull, becoming unable to resist temptation, and that we're going to sleep in our sins. And I want to ask you this morning, are you going to sleep in your sin? You know, if you were on the Titanic over a hundred years ago, and somebody came pounding on the door of your room, woke you up, and said, we're drowning, we're going down. And you just said, well, my bed is so comfortable. I'm so tired. I'm just going to sleep. And you ignore the danger. You ignore the possibility of escaping. It's inevitable you're going to go down with the ship. And that's what David was doing. He was sleeping. While all these warning signs were coming to him, he was asleep. Listen, if you hide sin in your heart, the Lord will not hear you. And you will be asleep in your sin. What's your perception of the temptations that you face? Do they repulse you? Are you able to withstand them? Do they, do they bring a sense of, of disgust? Or are you drawn in by them? You see, there's another, there's another issue here as well. David's on the rooftop, he's by himself. And he's presented with a powerful temptation. Listen, there, there's, a, there's a sense in which we need to understand when we flee. And if we're asleep spiritually, we won't flee. We won't do the right thing and then we'll do the wrong thing. And friends, as we think about this, I think sometimes we see ourselves doing the small things. And yes, sometimes the Lord brings us to repentance, and I'm thankful that He does. But I am not naive enough to think that there's nobody here that is never or is not dealing with something that's, that you're hiding. And you're going to sleep about it. May God wake you up, friend. May He bring an acute awareness of your sin. Just as David fled from that situation, so we ought to flee from that situation. We ought not to be putting ourselves there. We ought not to be naming, be with those that Named with those that are doing those things. So what was another thing? The abundance of success. The abundance of idleness. The abundant strength of the temptation. David is alone. He's in a vulnerable place. He's, 
And he has this temptation that comes to him. He's easily overtaken by sin when he is acting in his own strength. I want us to understand something today, friends. Sin will master us if we're in our own strength. God told Cain, he said, sin is crouching at the door and it wants to master you. It wants to control you. It wants to take over your life. We're going to hold our finger here and let's turn and turn with me to Luke 22. I want to read something that Jesus tells Peter here that is, that is very eye-opening. <clears throat> Luke 22 and in verse 31. Here Jesus is, he's headed to his death. He's going to the cross. And the encounters of the disciples are along the way and and some of the things that they've argued about being great in the kingdom of heaven and so on. But in verse 31, Jesus, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brother. Do you understand that Jesus says, Simon, Satan would have you. And what does he want to do? He wants to sift you like wheat. You are no object to him. You don't matter to him. He has no problem taking over you and sifting you like wheat. But he said, I prayed for you. I've prayed for you. The difference between Peter and Judas was that Christ prayed for Peter. David, in this sin, he's in a place where Satan had his day with Peter, with, with David. And folks, it's that way for all of us. That unless we are helped by God, Unless there is grace given to us, we will fall. This day is coming. The evil day is coming. It's a day, the evil day is a day when the evil is great and the, and the strength is small. It's a day when the evil is, it has, is powerful and the ability to withstand is weak. And so I, I, I want us to understand that we must be aware that this is who we are. That apart from Christ giving us strength, this is who we are. Satan is cruel. He's unrelenting in his attempts to bring down anyone. Anyone Especially those whom God is using successfully. Satan would love to cause every successful person in the kingdom of God to fall and to fall in a drastic way. He's here to take glory from God. And when God uses somebody and there's some success that goes with it, it's because God is getting glory from it. If God's going to use you for His glory, my friend, it's going to be by His power and by His power alone. Because we are too weak. We're too weak. Well, let's notice something else. Going to verse 3 and 4 and following. The abundance of authority without accountability. The abundance of authority without accountability. There is no person alive today that is able to stand up to this kind of abundance of authority where he can say, go and come. And at some point, 
never be held accountable, and stay faithful. God has always desired that authority and accountability go together. And as we're, we're, we're weak enough, we're human enough, we're frail enough, we're, we're, though we want to be men and we want to take down the giants, though we want to <clears throat> turn the world upside down for Christ, never forget the fact that you still deal with the flesh that could unseat every good thing you want to do. And it is only by the grace of God that you stand. And one of the means of His grace is accountability with His church. That's why God puts us together and does not put us on an island by ourselves. <clears throat> let's, notice what he, let's notice verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> so even here, David sends and inquires about her. And he sends other people to go do the inquiring for him. <coughs> Pardon me. Even though she was somebody else's wife, he could send messengers to inquire about her and he could pursue a relationship with her and nobody challenged him on it. Nobody asked him, what are you doing? Would to God somebody could have stood up and said, hey, what are you, what's going on here? Nobody was there. Verses 8 to 9. Let's notice that even when he attempts to, he tells Uriah to go down to your house and the word for wash your feet is literally mean take a bath and, 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 and spend the night with your wife in order to cover up his sin. He attempts to use Uriah to do this, and they all saw what was going on because he sent a gift of food after them. Here's supper for you. It's catered to you tonight. Y'all have a date together. No one questions it. No one questions it. Now let's go to verse 15. <clears throat> So he writes this letter and he sends to the, in the letter, set Uriah in the forefront of the battle and have him killed in the battle. And he orchestrates Uriah's death and Joab knows about it because he tells Joab to do this. Nobody stops him. Why didn't Joab stand up and say, listen, that's my right hand man. That's a faithful man of God. Why do you want to put him to death? You see, these things need to be in place because we are weak. And David refuses. There was nobody there to have, that had the authority or had the, the gumption to stand up and say, something's wrong here. Friends, we, we must do this for ourselves. But we must also hear when others say what's going on, and we should welcome that. So I want to ask you this morning, what's the state of your soul? Where are you at with God? Are you asleep in your sin? Are you carried uninhibited? Carried along in your sinful pleasures. They're only going to be here for a season. Asleep and sliding into deeper and more heinous sins. Or are you hearing the word of God this morning? Are you hearing those who say, hey, what's going on here? What are you doing? You know, many times people that... that, that are willing to stand up and challenge someone who's sliding downward, they get a lot of anger, a lot of, a lot of anger thrown back at them. It makes the person mad. Nobody wants to be called out. 
But if somebody calls you out, friend, do you embrace that and say, thank you for caring enough to flag me down? Thank you for bringing me to account on this issue. If you're clear and if you're free, you have nothing to hide. If God is at work in your life and you need to clear something up, be thankful that you can clear it up if you're you're innocent. It's the guilty. It's the one who's hiding his sin that does not want any accountability in his life. It's the one who wants to hide behind all the good things that are going on. It's that one that needs to be stopped, that needs to be awakened. Are you fleeing the temptations? Are you fleeing the temptation for your personal sin? Or are you being overtaken by it? Are you, have you just given up? Are you angry with those who would call you into account? Or are you willing to say, my life's an open book? And that open book can sit on a, in a glass case for all to see. You know, would to God that, that we had more Daniels whose life was an open book before God. And all the world could tell. They knew. They knew when Daniel was facing struggles. But in this case, David is not an open book. David's hiding. David's hiding behind the system that's brought him success. He's hiding behind the kingdom that has done so much good. He's hiding behind the infrastructure of all the things that happen in normal life. And he's hiding behind it because he does not want to repent. He cannot repent at this point. Well, not only was there a context to, of the sin, but let's notice the callous disposition of the soul in sin. There are some warning signs that David just blew past. He was like on a fast train to destruction. And he couldn't stop once he got started. Now let's notice what some of these things were. Going back to verse one, verses 1 to 4. He first sees Bathsheba in this compromised place. And immediately, he should have fled. You get into that kind of a situation. You get into that kind of place. Run. Flee also youthful lusts. It's like, it's like a, a, a man that I remember talking about. He and his buddies were taking a hike one day and they all of a sudden found themselves surrounded by rattlers, rattlesnakes. They were rattling here and there and over there, and there was one in the trail. He said, somebody said, run. He said, we all got out of there. Nobody wanted to be bit. He said, that's what it means to flee. He said, I think about the moment of panic. When someone said run, and we had rattlers, rattlesnakes all around us that were rattling. When a rattlesnake is rattling, that means he knows you're there and he's, he's, he's warning you that he's set on striking. So they ran. That's the kind of running we need to do. That's the kind of fleeing we need to do. That's the kind of fleeing David should have done. That's the warning sign that he blew past. He did not see himself in this situation as a bad thing. Number two, verses two through five. We notice how that he took her and he sinned with her, and then she became, she conceived. She became with child when she called him or she sent message to him, said that she is with child 
He's not awakened. It doesn't change anything in the trajectory of his course. He stays with what he's doing. He sets about to cover it up. This is a huge warning sign. Here he's seeing the effects of his sin already becoming evident. And he didn't turn around and repent. But he rather straight on past into the cover-up mode. <clears throat> so he sends for Uriah. Verses 9 through 13. He attempts to, to manipulate Uriah into a place where he can cover this up successfully. But I want us to note that Uriah's faithfulness, his Commitment to God and to the will of God and to, the, and to the, the need that they had to fight this battle and to be faithful to his, his boss. Ultimately, it was being faithful to David. This loyalty is commendable. This loyalty of I will do what is right in spite of what anybody tells me to do. And of all people, if David told him to go, go take a break and spend some time with his wife, David of all people, of the people he respected, you would think that Uriah would say, okay, if David's telling me this, then I should listen. But he had a higher sense of calling than David. His sense of calling was that of God. I need to be doing what God wants me to do regardless. I'm challenged by this man. He was a Hittite. He was not born in Israel. But he was a worshiper of God and was amongst the people of God because he loved God and worshipped God. He was faithful to God. Uriah's faithfulness did not stop David's downward plunge. Uriah was faithful even to his death. And David didn't recognize his own sinfulness. This is a warning sign that should, have, that should have brought him to absolute tears and repentance. But instead, he hardens his heart. He hardens his heart and he murders him. Because he realized Uriah could not be manipulated into covering his sin. In verse 27, notice that he says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There was David's real problem. It displeased the Lord. It does not matter whom you please. If God is displeased, we're in trouble. And we need to take that approach. But David is calloused to the fact that he was staying in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was calloused to the fact that his sin led to an illegitimate child being born. And him committing adultery and him leading Bathsheba into adultery. He's calloused against the fact that he cannot coerce her husband to hide his sin. He's calloused over the fact that he killed this man to cover his sin. And he cannot, he cannot hear the voice of the Lord anymore. David writes about this in Psalm 32, and I want to turn there <clears throat> and read a couple verses in Psalm 32. And this is what gives us hope, friends. In Psalm 32, David is writing here about the joy of his forgiveness 
David did find forgiveness. But in verses 3 through 4, he says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. David was a miserable man. He couldn't sleep. He was in pain. Literally, physically, he was withering away because of this sin. I believe that there was, there was some time here. The child was already born, so there, was, there could have been up to a year now. And David is, is groaning. He's withering away. He's, 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 he's dying because of the guilt that he bears. I want to tell you today that probably the greatest problem of all the things that go wrong in our nation today is that people don't know what to do with their guilt. There's no place to go with their guilt. They put on an elaborate show to hide their guilt for years. But they know that God at some point is requiring of them what they are doing that nobody else sees. So while David chose to sin, he, he willfully chose to go down this road. David could not choose the consequences. David would never have chosen these consequences. David would never have wanted it to end like this. And nobody wants their sin to, to end in death. But when, God, when man sinned in the Garden of Eden, God told him, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And this is coming to reality. David is here becoming aware that something is desperately wrong. He can choose to do this sin, but he cannot choose his way out of the sin. He can choose to fall for it. But his choices will not make the thing right. He must have mercy from God. He must have cleansing from God. He must have forgiveness from God. Are you aware this morning of the depravity that lies in the natural man? That lies in the heart? And I want to ask you this morning, are you sure that the path you are on is the path of life? Or are you just okay with your sin? You can pass it over, pacify your feelings for a time. But you're going to give an account one day to Almighty God for what you have done with your guilt. Your guilt is what God must deal with. Well, I want to look thirdly at the courageous prophet and his pointed proclamation. We don't have time to go into a lot here, but he says in, in, in verse 1 that the Lord sent Nathan. The Lord sent him. Listen, would to God we had more prophets that the Lord could send who will say the word of God and leave it at that. Nathan comes, and Nathan is bold, but he's not more condemning than he has to be. In fact, I think there's some things that we can learn from Nathan here. And it's the work of God, really. I cannot imagine what kind of a job this would be. To stand before the king and to deliver the message that God has given Knowing the king is in the wrong, your life is on the line. 
But you know what's the problem with most preachers today? As Dr. Lawson says, people don't want to kill them anymore. You know, preachers used to stand and preach to royalty, not knowing if at the end of the message their head would be taken off because of what they had to say from the Word of God. And brothers, it ought to be that way with all of us every time that God puts, gives us an understanding of His Word to speak, to teach, that we, are, we know we're standing, we're, 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 we're preaching, we're teaching this before God. And it's about what God wants us to do. About what God's doing in the other person's life, not about what I can manipulate them to do. Nathan does not try to manipulate David. He does not try to sugarcoat it either. He's bold with God's warning. Notice he tells the story about the rich man who, who had many flocks and herds, and he goes and takes the lamb from the poor one, poor man, the man who loved his lamb. And I want us to note that David is angry with the rich man. How can David be angry with the rich man over a sheep? I think David is being shown who he is. But it hasn't come home yet. And I want us to note that spiritual sleepiness, spiritual dullness... We can get angry at somebody else's sin. But when it comes to my sin, when it comes to my sin, I can't see it. I can't see it. So many times, we can look out here and we can say, we can decry the the corruption that is in the world and everybody else is wrong. But what about me? What about me? Am I willing to take the finger of God, let the finger of God point to my heart? You know, Nathan brings those words to bear. He says, you are the man. You are this man. This man that you say should die, that's you. And I want us to note that that point of proclamation brought David to repentance. It's because it's God pointing his finger at David. And until God's word, my friend, is personal with us. Until these words become a direction to you personally. You'll blow off all the warnings. Ah, that's for him. Yeah, but he did that. He's worse than I am on that. She, she's the one that talks about everybody. Or, or, or you know, we, we, we point at other people. But my friend, unless God's word points into your heart and you submit to that, you will die in your sin. There's absolutely no other way around it. The only hope that we have for David is the fact that God had mercy on him and he came to repentance. Yes, I believe in the eternal security of the believer. But you know what I believe about it? I believe that God brings them to repentance over their sin. Unless they repent, I don't have hope. And you shouldn't either. Because the Bible says that every child of God is brought to this place. Every child of God is brought to repentance. It's a work of God. The only way anyone repents is when God's truth is aimed at their hearts. We will always shift the blame unless unless we repent. We'll always shift the blame unless we repent. Lastly, I want us to note the contrite confession. David says, I am the man. In verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. It's me. He doesn't blame, he never blames anyone else. 
He never blames Bathsheba. He doesn't blame Joab. He doesn't blame Uriah. He doesn't blame the enemies. He lets it fall on him. Repentance is only found as the responsibility for my sin comes home. And so I want you to know that if you're facing, if you've been covering up your sin, you've been going for years or you've been going for days or you've been going for weeks and there's a pointed proclamation brought to you, there's a word from God's, from God's word that comes to you that calls you to repentance. The awakening in your heart is known when you say, it's me. I'm not just sorry I was caught. I'm sorry that I did that. Nathan is full of grace. Let's notice what he says there in verse 13. So Nathan, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also, also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because this deed you have, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Nathan departed to his house. Listen, as David repented, Nathan understood that God gives forgiveness and grace. But he also understood he could not reverse the consequences. The sword never departed from David's house. There was always fighting in David's family. Friends, we can't reverse the consequences of sin. But God calls us to repentance so that we may be saved. We may be saved from our sin. As we, as we close, <clears throat> let's remember that God has taken this man from a place of not knowing his own depravity to being shown it and repenting from it. And praise God for that. And I want to tell you, if you as even as a believer are struggling You've, held, you've been hiding something behind everybody else's back. Today is the day of, self, of repentance for you. Today, you can let God's word, you can let the word of Nathan point right to your heart. And if you today are repentant and you acknowledge your sin, he will forgive you. And he will bring you into fellowship with himself. That's what we find in Psalm 51. We're brought, <clears throat> David is brought back into fellowship with God. If you're a sinner and you've never repented, you've never come to faith in the Lord, listen, today is the day of salvation. I don't have any room in Scripture to tell you that you'll be okay by letting it go. I don't have any place that I can guarantee you that tomorrow you'll find repentance. If God is pointing His finger into your life, then He's calling you to say, I'm the man. I need your salvation, God. No, you can't save yourself. It is Him, He who saves. But God is plenteous in mercy. I just want to go back to Psalm 51 and read the first two verses again. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There is cleansing and forgiveness with God. Let's pray. Lord, today as we humble ourselves before your word, we cry out to you, Lord, that even as you reveal things to us that we need to repent of, I pray that we would be able to repent of those things.
I pray that your hand of mercy would be upon each one here. That even as they see the hand of the finger of your finger pointing at their hearts and saying, you're the man. You're to blame. I pray that we would be able to just cast ourselves upon you and say, yes, you're right. And acknowledge today that we are sinners in need of your saving grace. Father, bring, bring us to yourself closer and closer. We may rightly draw near to you in truth and repentance. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all your mercies to us and how good you have been to us. In Jesus' name, amen.